So we continue forward in uh, the book of Luke, looking for the third time now at this wonderful section, the path to Emmaus and back. This is our uh, third sermon in this section. I'll be reading from verse 9 to verse 43 of this chapter. So please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves. And he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road? And while he opened the scriptures to us, so they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened. And suppose they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. 
For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and ate it in their presence. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. Amen, amen. Please be seated. So the chiastic literary structure has informed the preaching of God's Word. First in part one, we looked at communion and life reversals, and then two weeks ago, Emmaus resurrection reversals. And if you look there in your sermon notes, you'll see in part one there the structure and how the center point there teaches us about the spoken word and the broken bread there at the heart of the reversals that took place. Word, communion, and life reversals where eyes are opened and we see with faith instead of walking by sight. And we come to walk confidently with the invisible Christ by faith. Our hope is restored and our actions change. We go back to Jerusalem, the place of hope in our lives. And then looking more closely there at those verses 17 through 30 in part 2, we see these resurrection reversals that take place. The focus of it, remember, resurrection is history's inflection point. It is the turning point of everything in history. It was the turning point in their lives. We saw the empty tomb and their dawning faith. Their hearts were rekindled with Messiah truth. And these warmed hearts welcomed in a new friend. Fellowship was expanded. And then their body and their soul is made happy and tranquil, eating there with Christ in the moments prior to Him revealing Himself to them. And if we look at the structure of the text, we see in verses 34 and 35 today, when they arrive back after they arise and hastily return to Jerusalem, they get back there and they tell them what's happened. And the structure of that takes us back into verses 17 through 30 again. So today's sermon will be looking at verses 34 and 35, but also going back again to those earlier sections in 17 through 30 and in verse 32 about warmed hearts. And as we do this, we will see that Christ reveals Himself to us in His Word and in fellowship around broken bread. And that this is the ongoing reality of the eschaton, the age of of regeneration, the path by which He transforms us into His likeness and brings His glowing, expanding kingdom to bear in real life. So, First, verse 35a, we see the disciples arriving and speaking of the spoken, speaking to their friends of the spoken word. And they say this in this phrase, the things that had happened on the road. Listen, though, first to, the, to their arrival once again in verses 33 and 34. So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying... The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. So they get there, and this is what's happening. 
And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So we see these two disciples filled with the joy of their time with Christ. They've got a story to tell. Quickly return to Jerusalem, to the eleven, filled with hope, filled with faith, understanding the Messiah, to tell them about their experience with Christ on the road and at the table. But when these two arrived in Jerusalem, they discovered the eleven talking together, proclaiming the Lord is risen indeed. Jesus wasn't only active with these two, he's active everywhere. He had been active with the eleven as well. They had already learned of Christ's resurrection. And they are discussing the resurrected Lord has appeared to Simon. And it seems like perhaps that's how they found out that he was resurrected. So the two Emmaus disciples arrive at this celebratory marveling that's taking place. And they're going to relate their wonder story. But even as we'll see in future texts, they still haven't come to the fullness of faith. They're still in this transition marveling process. They believe, but they need more faith. Bach says, The report of the eleven shows that Jesus is really among them, no matter where they are. It shows the surprising, comprehensive way in which the appearances came. Not only did Jesus provide evidence for his resurrection on the road, he did it in Jerusalem also. The excitement is so great that one report is interrupted by another. This appearance to Peter is also recorded in 1 Corinthians 15.5. We've talked about that before. But it is nowhere detailed, and it's worth you know, marveling at that as a side point along the way here. Isn't it going to be wonderful, I think, in heaven? Maybe we can get to know Peter well enough that he might share that with us, what that was like to talk to Jesus that first time. So, what are the things that happened on the road? That's what verse 35a says. It says, and they told about the things that had happened on the road. So we see here that they, the two disciples first relate their experience on the road with Christ. They could have told the story in the way they wanted to, but they first relate their experience on the road with Christ when they didn't recognize Him, when they were confused because of unbelief and ignorance. And when Jesus opened the Word of God by His Spirit's fire, and they relate this to them, bringing them how they went through this process of growing knowledge and growing faith, bringing them from fantasy to reality. So, this text calls us back to what happened on the road, and so we will look there again. So what happened? Christ preaches the truth to these two disciples. Then He said to them, this is going back to verse 25 and 27, this is back on the road with the disciples. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets, in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So, first of all, this idea of being slow of heart to believe. And I think we all can see that this is true of us as well, is it not? Christ defines their state prior to his teaching. They're stuck in a spot of unbelief in this moment. They have a faith deficit. They have been reading the scriptures as those who walk by sight, not by faith. They have not been reading the Bible through Bible eyes. The scriptures about a suffering, dying Messiah, this crucifixion idea, this level of humiliation and suffering, and about a resurrected Messiah. Resurrection. These are missed and misread because of their lack of faith. 
Not that they don't necessarily believe in a resurrection to come in the future, but not right here breaking into the midst of history. The scriptures about a Messiah providing total deliverance from sin, death, devils, hell, and all the world, those are too big for them. Too big for their provincial, regional, material, temporal expectations to believe. They're reading their Bible through eyes, through natural eyes, not through Bible eyes. Not through the eyes of the God who spoke all things into existence and who is the king and ruler of all. They weren't thinking this way. They were slow of heart to believe. Bach says, in short, the resurrection's reality should not have been hidden, but now the veil is being decisively removed. What are they slow of heart to believe? All that the prophets have spoken. Their lack of faith caused them to believe only certain portions of what they read in Scripture. Their lack of faith did not allow them. It restrained their eyes like their eyes were restrained from seeing Jesus on the road. Their eyes have been restrained from seeing Jesus in the text. They need more faith in order to believe everything written in their Bibles. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Would it be wonderful to have faith to believe, to see what the words are saying and not have our eyes veiled by our own lack of faith. Bach says Jesus emphasizes that there is much Old Testament teaching on this, and so he speaks of all that the prophets have spoken. The various speeches and acts where Jesus is proclaimed from the Old Testament indicate what texts are in view here. And key among some of these texts are Deuteronomy 18, 15, Psalm 2, verse 7, Psalm 16, 8 through 11, Psalm 110, verse 1, Psalm 118 and Isaiah 53, verse 8. Other summary references in the Old Testament occur in Luke 22, 44 through 47, and in Acts 3, 19 through 21. Later, I'll challenge you to a methodical, comprehensive, personal, and family study along these lines. Wouldn't that be a joyous study? Books have been written. Books have been written. That would be a wonderful study, wouldn't it? Verse 26, the reality of who the Messiah really is. Suffering completed before entering glory. This is important for us to see because when we are called to take up our cross and follow Him, we should expect, desire the same process of humiliation unto exaltation. This is how the meek inherit the earth. Jesus says, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? Ought not the Christ? These two disciples had missed the Old Testament Scriptures about the Messiah. This word ought means necessity. Prophecy of God must be fulfilled. They missed it. It is not an optional item in Scripture. It is by necessity. It isn't one of those things in Scriptures where God lays out options for you to choose from that are reasonable. It must occur. He must suffer before entering His glory. 
And it said, suffered these things. The crucifixion, suffering saga of Christ was predicted in the Old Testament. His humiliation, the mock trial, the beatings, the path to the cross, the occurrences on the cross. This death of the Messiah was not accessible to the limited faith of disciples as they had read their Bibles prior to this time. Even when Jesus told them Himself pre-crucifixion, remember? About His looming death and resurrection, they did not believe it at that time. We all go through this, don't we? Where we hear things and we don't believe it. We don't understand it. Our eyes can't see it. And later, God gives us faith and we look back and we realize that we were blinded then. And what happened is that God came and not only preached the Word, but inhabited the preaching of the Word by His Spirit, giving us burning hearts. That's what they needed. Bach says, the consensus is that first century Judaism did not anticipate a suffering Messiah. Nonetheless, Jesus says that the Old Testament prophets had such an expectation. And here is where Christian and Jewish messianic expectation and eschatology differed greatly. Christ had to suffer these things before He entered into His glory. What is this idea of entering into glory? They had the wrong idea. They saw a king on a Palestinian throne, a renewed Jerusalem of the Old Testament at that time. And they certainly didn't see a death coming before that. They didn't see a Messiah who had to suffer and die in order to reach that place. They had it all wrong. So there's a couple things here. Number one, glory must come only after suffering. Brothers and sisters, glory must come only after suffering. Humiliation must come before exaltation. The humble are the ones who receive honor. Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Let it be in you who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. At the end of that scripture begins to see the hint that they don't understand the scope of the glory that has been given to Christ. The Messiah they were expecting was a mortal, provincial Messiah. Maybe He might live forever on His earthly throne. They didn't understand that you had to suffer first. And then, the glory, the timing of the glory is in view, but then also the scope of of the glory. Glory comes only after humiliation, only after suffering. And the glory that is in view is a glory that is beyond their comprehension and it's beyond ours as well, probably. Greater glory than they had ever imagined. It seems they were thinking nationally, politically, materially, temporally. 
But the glory of Christ, brothers and sisters, we know it is universal. It is every jurisdiction on this globe. It is both seen and unseen, past, present, and into eternity. They had no idea. Going on with Philippians 2, starting at verse 9 through to verse 11. Therefore God also has highly exalted him. This is what is being, this is being opened up from the end of uh, verse 9. Listen, which is above every name. Okay? God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. They didn't understand that. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They didn't understand the need for the depths of His suffering. And it's associated with the fact that they didn't understand the heights of His glory. Bach says, Resurrection means reception into heavenly authority. Historical or prophetic summaries of Jesus' career usually discuss the resurrection after speaking of Jesus' suffering. Here the emphasis on glory is a focus on Jesus' position and authority, not just His coming to life. Such glory exists now for Jesus and looks to its manifestation in return. The emphasis here is on His entering glory so that the exalted nature of His current position is stressed. This theme recalls the transfiguration and the discussion about Jesus' exodus in chapter 9. The pointing to glory anticipates the emphasis on resurrection and exaltation that will be mentioned in the speeches of Acts. I'm looking forward to that. Glory refers to the splendor of being in God's presence, or in Jesus' case, at God's side. Jesus is not only alive, He rules. He has entered into His glory, which means that He has been raised to reign next to God, just as He promised at His trial. As such, the background of remark is Psalm 110 and Daniel 7.14. The great manifestation of that glory is yet to come, but Jesus has now emerged from the dark night of His suffering. The man that the Emmaus travelers are walking with is no mere disciple or pilgrim. He is a regal visitor. So it goes on. And this king of all, this glorified one, teaches them. Comprehensive Old Testament proof of the true Messiah, the one himself containing all authority. He says, the text says, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Brothers and sisters, take note that Jesus, this one who has entered into his glory, not fully, not ascended yet, not enthroned yet, but resurrected and no longer in humiliation, coming up, rising up on his way to glory, this great king does not simply say, I am God, so believe what I tell you here on this road. Believe the words I speak to you now. No. This one who through the prophets spoke in times past, here. Jesus shows His written word has equal authority to His presence with the two disciples. Worth noting, brothers and sisters. He didn't do that. His 
teaches us how we are to view God's word. Instead, Jesus based his argument in his written word. Dwell on this, dear saints. Next, we see here that the Old Testament is about Jesus Christ. All of it. So is the New Testament. And really, herein lies the continuity beneath all covenant theology. We talk a lot about covenant theology around here. The Messiah is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This, His Word, is about Him from start from Moses to Revelation. What does this mean? What does this tell us? This is why we believe in the continuity of Scripture because Jesus does not change. We see more of Him. He's unveiled more and more clearly as the covenants unfold throughout history. But He is the same. Matthew Henry says, it's a long quote, there's a lot of good things in here. He says, first, there are things dispersed throughout all of the Scriptures concerning Christ which it is of great advantage to have collected and put together. You cannot go far in any part of Scripture, but you meet with something that has reference to Christ, some prophecy, some promise, some prayer, some type or other, for He is the true treasure in the field of the Old Testament. A golden thread of gospel grace runs through the whole web of the Old Testament. There is an eye of that, white to be discerned in every place. Secondly, The things concerning Christ need to be expounded. The eunuch, though a scholar, would not pretend to understand them except some man should guide him. For they were delivered darkly according to that dispensation. But now that the veil is taken away, the New Testament expounds the old for us. Thirdly, Jesus Christ is himself the best expositor of Scripture, particularly the Scriptures concerning himself. And even after his resurrection, it was in this way that he led people into the knowledge of the mystery concerning himself, not by advancing new notions independent from Scripture, but by showing how the Scripture was fulfilled and turning them over to the study of it. Even the apocalypse itself is but a second part of the Old Testament prophecies and has continually an eye to them. If men believe not Moses and the prophets, they are incurable. Fourthly, in studying the Scriptures, it is good to be methodical and to take them in order. For the Old Testament light shone gradually to the perfect day, and it is good to observe how at sundry times and in divers' manners, subsequent predictions improving and giving light to the preceding ones, God spoke to the fathers concerning His Son, by whom He has now spoken to us. Some begin their Bible at the wrong end who study the Revelation first. But Christ has here taught us to begin at Moses. I'm thinking of that hymn, Lo, How a Rose Air Blooming. Speaks to us of the way the Lord God in His infinite wisdom gradually unveiled Christ to us through the ages in His Word. Well, what happened to these two men on the road as they heard Christ, the Messiah, preach from the Word He inspired to them about the true Messiah? Well, they talked about it later. They said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the Scriptures to us? Burning hearts. 
What happened within these two disciples as Jesus preached to their ears? The Holy Spirit of God preached to their hearts. Christ Jesus, our Lord, submitted himself to the role of a human preacher, putting the word of God bouncing on their ears and through chemical processes ending up within their minds. But then the Spirit of Christ took hold of the preaching and preached it to their hearts, increasing their faith to receive and believe the word of God from the lips of Christ. Like invisible tongues of fire within their hearts, the Holy Spirit enlightened and warmed them to the greatness of their Messiah and the staleness of their prior fantasy world. They were stirred by the word. Bach says, their hearts were burning within them as Jesus spoke to them. His exposition gave them intense emotion and excitement. The idiom to light a fire under someone might be comparable to this only New Testament use of this figurative, with this figurative force in this word. They had great excitement and comfort at hearing the scripture opened up to them in this way. They sensed that something special was happening. But only after their eyes would op- were opened could they see why this man had opened the scripture so clearly to them. They had been treated to a rare tour of the Old Testament and received insight into God's plan as a result. We see here the power and the glory of biblical preaching combined with spirit-wrought hearing in faith. Jesus and these two disciples were feasting on the Word of God together. It was a mutual feasting on the Word. What glory when the Word of God is preached and heard under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. This is the fire that burns to the world. Matthew Henry says, see here what preaching is likely to do good. There's two points in here. He's talking about preaching first and he's talking about hearing next. Point one, preaching is likely to do good. Such as Christ's was. What kind of preaching? Plain preaching and that which is familiar familiar and level to our capacity. He talked with us by the way and scriptural preaching. He opened to us the scriptures, the scriptures relating to himself. Ministers should show people their religion and their Bibles and that they preach no other doctrine to them than what is there. They must show that they make that the fountain of their knowledge and the fountain of their faith. Note, the expounding of those scriptures which speak of Christ has a direct tendency to warm the hearts of his disciples, both to quicken and to comfort them. Next, what kind of hearing of the word, Matthew Henry still speaking, what kind of hearing of the word is likely to do good? That which makes the heart burn. When we are much affected by the things of God, especially with the love of Christ in dying for us, and have our hearts thereby thereby drawn out in love to Him, and drawn up in holy desires and devotions, then our hearts burn within us. When our hearts are raised and elevated and are as the sparks which fly upward towards God, And when they are kindled and carried out with a holy zeal and indignation against sin, both in ourselves and others, and we are in some measure refined and purified from it by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then we may say, through grace our hearts are thus inflamed. 
So this brings us to the moment where he's about to depart. But they want him to come in. They call him inside. And they sit down at the table together. And this is what they emphasize next in 35b. Knowing Christ, not only in the spoken word, but in the broken bread, this process must be united together. He was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The disciples go on to tell of their experience at the table with Christ. They did not know Christ while He was preaching to them. They knew Christ through the process of spoken word and broken bread. Please hear this, brothers and sisters. What would have happened if they had not invited Christ in and sat at table with Him? Or conversely, what would have happened if Christ had sat at table with them but not preceded by the preaching of the Word of God? Perhaps this is a grid by which we can understand many failures in our own lives and in the, lives of God, in the life of God's church today. So we go back to the text again where it happened originally. Verse 30 and 31. Eyes opened at the table with Jesus. Now it came to pass as He sat at the table with him, with them that He took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they knew Him. And He vanished from their sight. So by revealing Himself to them while sitting at the table in the blessing and the breaking and the giving of bread, Christ displays to us the essence of His salvation for His people. The return to Eden that we have discussed. The return to unbroken blessing and fellowship with God Wherein as we have these experiences Sunday after Sunday, mealtime after mealtime, we both enjoy Him and in the enjoyment know Him more and shine more in this earth. The Word of God preached must have its fruition in the eating at the table with Christ and with one another. This is the table of the eschaton wherein Christ is revealing Himself to the globe one Gospel meal at a time. Practically speaking, this is why the church throughout history, the tradition throughout the history of the church, is that Christian worship, the pinnacle, is the bread and the wine. It is in the fellowship that we receive the blessings of salvation and in the fellowship that we see Him and know Him more and grow in receiving the blessings. Matthew Henry says, See how Christ by His Spirit and grace makes Himself known to the souls of His people. How does Christ make Himself known to the souls of His people? Matthew Henry puts it this way. Number one, He opens the Scriptures to them, for they are that which testify of Him to those who search them and search for Christ in them. Number two, what's next? How does He make Himself known to the souls of His people. First, the Word. Next, He meets them at His table in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper and commonly there makes further discoveries of Himself to them. He is known to them in the breaking of bread. But three, 
the work is completed by the opening of the eyes of their minds and causing the scales to fall off from them as from Paul's sin and his conversion. If he that gives the revelation do not give the understanding, we are in the dark still. And yet, the beauty of Emmaus is it not only points us to the power of the Lord's Supper, but it points to the power of all fellowship. This is a common meal of fellowship between three three people, perhaps three friends at this point in time. So brothers and sisters, every table becomes a hearth of fire and illumination in the age of the regeneration. This should bring a whole new sense of purpose and anticipation to every meal you share in your home. Let Emmaus set the pattern for every meal you have from this point forward in your life, if it has not already. Matthew Henry says this was not a miraculous meal like that of the five loaves, nor a sacramental meal like that of the Eucharist, but it was a common meal. Yet Christ here did the same as he did in those to teach us to keep up our communion with God through Christ in common providences as well as in special ordinances and to crave a blessing and give thanks at every meal and to see our daily bread provided for us and broken to us by the hand of Christ himself, the master, not only of the great family, but of all our families Wherever we sit down to eat, let us set Christ at the upper end of the table. Take our meat as blessed to us by him and eat and drink to his glory and receive contentedly and thankfully what he is pleased to carve out to us. Be the fare ever so coarse and mean. We may well receive it cheerfully if we can by faith see it coming to us from Christ's hand and with his blessing. This is good news, is it not? I like to eat. I know you like to eat too. You know, sometimes we like to eat too much, don't we? But eating in the context of gospel conversations is the victory of the world, if we want to put it that way. That's what Emmaus is revealing to us. And we'll see it over and over in the book of Acts. And we'll see it over and over throughout history. It's why we love movies like Babette's Feast so much. And it's why those who don't want peace will not eat with you. Because eating and drinking joyfully together reminds us that we're both just humans in need of God's grace. Eating and drinking together just increases compassion towards one another. And it brings us back together. And this very next section here, we're going to see the concept of peace opened up. Peace as the fruit of this kind of life. And the power of peace, because therein, we see in the psalm, do we not, dwells the great commandment, the great blessing, life forevermore. So some questions, quickly. Sixteen of them, I'll warn you. I couldn't quite stop. Good thing I ran out of time making questions. I've asked a few of these along the way. I'll emphasize them again for us. May God bless this time. What happens when knowledge of God's word is separated from communion with God and his people? 
What happens when knowledge of God's word is separated from communion with God and with his people? Pride. Conflict. Distance. I might add a million splinter Presbyterian denominations might be another practical example of this. What happens when the outward actions of fellowship are separated from truth? Empty ritual, hollow relationships. I'm sure you can think of other things as you consider this grid, this little matrix of understanding life, understanding how God changes us, where we might be deficient if we find ourselves in one pattern or the other, unbalanced. Do you read Scripture through Bible eyes or worldly eyes? Do you have a faith deficit that keeps you from paying close attention to certain Scriptures? And practically speaking, you might find that you just read it and you don't really understand what it's saying and you just go on. So sometimes that lack of faith will reveal itself in not understanding what's going on. Um, But in any case, are there Scriptures that you don't understand, or that trouble you. Often, that's where the faith deficit is revealing itself. Pray over that. Next. Who is speaking to you in the reading and study and preaching of God's Word? Who is speaking to you? Christ Himself. Christ Himself. Do you understand that? As Jesus spoke to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Pointing to His Word, He teaches us that when we receive His Word, we hear His voice. Next. Is your heart routinely burning as you receive the Word of God? You read the Word, when you hear the Word, when you study the Word, when you're in church on the Lord's Day listening to the Word preached, does your heart routinely burn in the ways that we've discussed? Are you stirred up by the word? Is a fire lit under you? Do you sense that things are changing about how you understand the world and yourself and the life that God has called you to live? Are you knowing Christ more? Are you discovering areas where you were thinking inaccurately about Jesus and who he is and what he's doing? What is the source of this fire? Spirit. This is the first way that we observe the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, right? The tongues of fire, visible. We see them visible. Are there tongues of fire in your heart as you read and meditate upon and study and memorize God's Word? Is it, is that, is it life to you? What pre-existing worldly presuppositions might be blinding you to God's Word? So these disciples, they couldn't think of a resurrection. They couldn't think of that kind of suffering. They were, they were stuck in natural understanding of the Scriptures. What kind of things like that might be present in your life that blind you to what the text is saying? Blind you from seeing Jesus for who He is, where He is, and what He is doing. Next, do you have biblical knowledge and faith in Christ? 
You see, faith and knowledge are connected. They didn't have the faith they needed to receive the right knowledge from Scripture. But as Christ gave them faith and they received new knowledge, they, had, they could go on to greater faith to learn more things of Jesus. Do you understand Christ's suffering and glory from the Word of God? The depths of His humiliation revealed to us in the cross, the hell that He experienced for us, the infinite wrath of God that He took upon Himself in the context of public humiliation and shame and top-level physical suffering. Unto glory. He accomplished what He was sent to accomplish. The destruction of death. The destruction of the devil. The destruction of all threat of hell against His people. The cleansing, the removal of sin from His people. The elimination of their guilt before God and the freeing knowledge that this throne is nothing but a throne of grace for us now. He accomplished all of these things. And this whole world belongs to Him. That's the glory that was given to Him. And He is the King over this world. He has been enthroned and He is bringing forth His victory in the earth as people like you and me believe in who he is and live lives that reflect that and show what he was like to the world around us. How does this inform your understanding of this, which is the theme of our upcoming presbytery, Lord willing? Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Is it blessed are the super wealthy? I don't hear that. Blessed are the 800 pound deadlifters? I don't see that either. I mean, blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. And this is what's being revealed to us in this story today. Because meekness is all about the lowliness and the gentleness and the humility revealed to us in Christ's life. And commended to us in various texts throughout Scripture as the demonstration of the life of Christ. Ephesians 4. It all starts out there, does it not? And we walk in a manner worthy of our calling. How do we do that? In all lowliness and gentleness. Ephesians, uh, in Galatians chapter 6, when we're trying to help others out of sin, we're warned to watch out for ourselves that we continue in a spirit of lowliness and gentleness. The meek shall inherit the earth. Nine, do you appreciate the authority of God Himself in His written word? That this is the Lord God speaking to you. The same voice that spoke the world into existence speaks to you from His word. And, and does this show up in your life plan for God's word for you and for your family? Um, we all go through dry times. We all drift away, you know. You get up and it's time for the Word or you sit down at the table and it's time for the Word. And the plan can be hard to carry out. <clears throat> May God grant us success in building our lives upon His Word. Do you understand that covenant theology arises from the unchanging Christ Himself? 
He is the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the continuity that we emphasize in understanding all of the biblical doctrines is really found in the continuity of Christ himself. Do you see this? Every covenant reveals more of Christ. Whether it was the covenant with Adam or with Noah or with Moses or with the patriarchs or with David or the new covenant itself. It's all opening up to us the grace of God to us in Christ our Savior. Therein is the source of our continuity in covenant theology. And this is why dispensationalism is such a danger is because it leads to a fragmented view of who Jesus is. Next, do you search for Christ on every page of your Bible? Is that a habit? Make that a habit as you read the Word in your family time and in your personal time, looking for Jesus on every page. Christ incarnate. Christ suffering. Christ the real man. Christ all God. Christ perfect. Fulfilling all the law of God. Christ suffering. Christ the satisfaction for the wrath of God. Christ in His love and His compassion. Christ resurrected, Christ glorified, Christ reigning, Christ in us, Christ with us, Christ around us, Christ returning to a world that looks like it belongs to him. Are you looking for him on every page of the scriptures? Do you see how the New Testament expounds the Old Testament for us? When you're looking for Christ in the Old Testament pages, you look through the understanding of the clarifying pages of the New Testament. Is this how you read your Bible? Do you marvel that Jesus Christ himself teaches you? I mean, he walked with them on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to Peter. He's very active. Do you know he can speak to everybody on the earth at once and not need to take a break afterwards? He is almighty. His life, his voice, his power are inexhaustible. And he loves you with an everlasting love and he made you for his specific plan in your life and in your family and in your covenant-keeping world that he's called you to. He speaks to you. This should be encouraging to you. By his word and by his spirit, Have you ever begun at Moses looking for Christ all the way through the Bible? Methodically? What a great study. Consider that. Look for books. Let me know if you find a good one. I'll bet you there are good books written on this already that have done this study for us. Does your study of God's Word, the receiving of the Word, lead you to fellowship, communion, Joyful togetherness with God and with His people. And in this context, do you find that you know Christ more? That's a healthy life. That's experiencing the means of grace unto sanctification. Day in and day out. Lord's day after Lord's day. These are the common, simple means of grace that God has given to us. And we can anticipate that he will transform us into his likeness. Granting us joy together every step of the way as he changes us.
family meals, fellowship meals together, the Lord's Supper. Do you understand? This is the ongoing feast of gladness and kingdom expansion. And it helps us, I think, to hear these words from Psalm 23 with even greater understanding. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Jesus is our teacher. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He is our teacher and he is with us. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Jesus feeds us. And it is in the feasting together that we're bringing forth the victory over his enemies Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We should expect to dwell in the house of the Lord forever and to see Him bringing His people safely home one after another throughout this world. This is a wondrous reality that we live in, brothers and sisters. May the Lord God bless us to be sanctified together as his people, according to his means, all for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice once again to be your people. We ask you, Lord God, to open our hearts and cause our our hearts to burn as you teach us. And we ask, Lord, that we would be moved by the truth of your word into fellowship with you and with one another, and that we would enjoy the bread and the wine together this day, anew, afresh in your presence, and that each of our meals from this day forward would be these types of meals with you present, and that we would be resting with you by faith in your presence and being transformed and the joyful fellowship that you've called us to exhibit, even as we are surrounded by our enemies. Oh God, bless us to this end for your glory, we pray, that we may know Christ, that you may be revealed to us more and more through the preaching of your word and the breaking of bread. In Jesus' name.